Good morning. Welcome to each and every one of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, visitors from near and far. It's good to be with you today as we gather together in a free land to open the Word of God and study it together. If you'll turn this morning with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Those of you visiting from elsewhere, we are currently going through a series of messages from the book of Judges. And um, today, that finds us in chapter 6, and we're going to be reading about, or being introduced to, Gideon. And uh, his life will take up four chapters in uh, the book of Judges. However, um, we're only going to consider the first chapter today as we get our introduction to him, his life, the times in which he lived, so that we can appreciate all that God teaches us about him. It's interesting, in the book of Judges, there are 12 judges, and some of them, there's three or four mentioned within one or two chapters. And in this case, uh, there's four chapters dedicated to this one judge. I believe there's things that God would have us to understand as he stretches out this explanation this morning. As you can see, our title for this morning's message is The Transformation of Gideon from Fear to Faith. I don't know if you can relate to that. I know I can. Uh, I have a disposition that can easily be uh, gripped by fear. And so uh, I appreciate the lessons that the Lord has been teaching me regarding the life of Gideon. But by now, if you're in Judges chapter 6, we're going to read the chapter and hopefully take a look at each of the sections of this chapter together and uh, uh, make it through in the time that the Lord has given us. This is Judges chapter 6 starting in verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out to the house of bondage, excuse me, and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? 
And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in the basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff which was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you cut down. And so Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, he has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, and the Abiezrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. 
When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let, let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. And if you'll join me, let's go before Him in prayer once again. Father, there's parts of this story that we are very familiar with. We hear about it all the time, setting out fleeces and uh, offering up sacrifices, hiding in fear because of enemies. Yet, Lord, You've repeated a story to us. Um spreading out the life of this man over these several chapters. We ask that today, Lord, as we open Your Word, we thank You for this privilege of, of being able to speak it freely and to come into a public place and not be afraid of, uh, uh, like the Midianites were, of someone coming in and ransacking them. And Father, we just ask that You would help this time to be honoring to You. Would You please guide my lips that I might speak Your truth and that You would prepare our hearts, Lord, to be able to take it to heart that Your Word would bear fruit for Your honor and glory. We pray again for the young ones in the back as they too hear the Word of God that You would speak it to their hearts. Bring many to, to faith in You today, Lord. For those who don't know You as Savior, that they would trust in You for their own salvation. For those of us, Lord, who belong to You, whom You have called as saints, Lord, help us not to be overcome by fear, but to have confidence and faith in You and what You're doing in us and would like to do through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, as we said, we're taking a, a view of the, the book of Judges. Now, for me, putting in the context of history has always been helpful. When I was in school, history didn't mean a whole lot to me until I started seeing, hey, wait a minute, this story fits in here. And, and putting world history together with Bible history has been a big help, right? But <clears throat> uh, Moses and Joshua lived right out here, 1450, 1445, when they came out of Egypt. And then coming across, and Moses died. Uh, Joshua lived out his life. So we've got a, a maybe... Uh, a, a hundred year span here until the beginning of the book of Judges. And over here at 1000 BC is where Saul and David begin the kingdom years, where there was a king in Israel, right? But as uh, the book of Josh, uh, Judges reminds us, there's this period of history, some 350 years approximately, where there was no human king in Israel, but God was reigning. And he wanted them to submit to his authority as the true king over his people during these years. But when they did not, there was these cycles of time, and this is what the book of Judges is known for, right? Where they would start off at a period of rest and peace, with their, not only internally, but with the nations around, but then they would fall into rebellion or sin, and they were disobeying God. And so as a result, God would send some means of suffering or difficulty as retribution. Now, these are all going to be ours, and maybe not words we always use, but it, it helps us to, to try to remember them, to have them all in the same. A time of, of, these were consequences of their rebellion, and so God allowed them to come. And when they did, they suffered. And as a result, they would endure that suffering for various lengths of time. And as a result, they would call out to God and repent. And when they cried to God, the faithful... God who said when they would call out to him for help that he would, he would send some form of rescue for them. 
And in the book of Judges, he would raise up a judge, a person who would help to free them from whatever was the cause of their suffering or difficulty. But then also, and this is something I don't think we remember very often in our study of the judges, and when we talk about judges, we think of the judge as one who judged the nations who were oppressing Israel. But see, it said, and we saw it in the book of uh, um, excuse me, in chapter 5 of Judges, right? Uh, it said that, I'm sorry, looking back to chapter 4, when Deborah was there, it said, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now, that's before the battle that we read about. So what does that mean? It means that God was raising up someone who was addressing the needs of the day and the difficulties that they were having and judging God's people. Setting them straight, saying what you are doing is wrong and is sinful and calling them to repentance. And before this battle, of course, the people were not obedient. They were suffering. Maybe this was partly during the time where they began to call out to God. But after they, and take a look then at Judges chapter 5, after the battle where Deborah and Barak defeated that foreign nation, it says at the last verse of chapter 5, so the land had rest for 40 years. So during this time when God raised up these judges, they were there, yes, to conquer this foreign nation, to set the people of God free so they could be back at rest, but then they were the people that God was using to help judge His own people. Let us not forget that God's work is not just to set us free from the enemy, but ruling over us. We are His subjects if He is king. And as His children in His family, the Bible says He chastens those He loves and He will speak truth to us to try to set the record straight to get us on the path that he wants us to be on. And this path of the judges we see cycling several times through. If you look actually throughout the book, it appears that there are at least six cycles of the judges. And there's 12 judges named, and they've tried to see who were these enemies who were coming against them that God used as uh, uh, discipline in response to their sin as they were in rebellion. And it's amazing how long they were oppressed, right? Before Ehud, they were oppressed 18 years before they called out to God and God raised up a deliverer. In this case, as we read in this chapter, it was the seventh year of them uh, being oppressed and impoverished under the hand of the Midianites that they finally called upon God. But again, we have these cycles and we're now in the midst of this one here, Gideon, the, um, I think it's the fifth of the judges mentioned here in our list. So, where does this happen? You're going to see um, that here is the land of Israel and the cities that were there in, in the days, maybe not they're all here, here today, but we do see the, sea of, the Mediterranean Sea on the, on the west side, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And this is the, the nation of Israel. Now, the area of Manasseh where, where Gideon's family lived was in this general area right here. Now, some of the tribe was on the other side, but over here is, is the area where these events are going to take place. Now, we don't exactly know where his hometown of Ophrah is anymore, but they believe it's somewhere not far from the Valley of Jezreel. When the battle takes place in the next chapter, we're going to see them near the hill of Moreh. But it says that if you look in, the, in this passage, that the Midianites were coming with the people of the east. They were coming on the other side of the Jordan River to where their homeland was. Now, who were the Midianites? Interesting to note, right? After Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac became a grown man, and Sarah died, and Isaac married uh, uh, Rebekah, chapter 25 of Genesis tells us that Abraham married Keturah. He took a new wife. 
And they had a number of children. One of them was Midian. And they departed from, from Isaac. Remember, uh, um, God had sent Ishmael away. Abram, Abraham wanted Isaac separate, that God could do what he was going to do in his life. But then he had these other children. And they are, have, have uh, migrated to this area to the east of the land of Canaan or Israel. Now, the reason I mention this with the, the, the map before we get back into the story itself is it says that when they would come in with their camels, the Amalekites, who were also from this eastern side of the Jordan, they would team up together, cross the Jordan, come into the land of Israel. And it says here in our chapter, notice that they came in to destroy it. That's the terminology in verse 5. They would come in with their livestock, their tents, coming as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. They came in after the Israelites had tried to plant crops, and before they could harvest them, they, they came in and attacked and left them nothing. This is all part of the oppression that God sent. But it says they even as far as Gaza, and we hear about the Gaza Strip today, don't we? All the way over on the western part of the land. And so they were going all throughout the land, ravaging it for whatever was there. With all their camels, that, they had to be a wealthy people to have all these camels and soldiers. And they would just ravage the land of Israel. Of course, God was allowing it to happen. He wasn't allowing the Israelites to defend themselves from them because it was part of their own retribution for sin. But this is what is happening in the land at this time. Now, what I want to do is highlight a few things that we learn about this time in the life of Israel and from the life of Gideon. First of all, Let's take a look at these difficulties that they were suffering. What were the reasons? They've already been stipulated as we looked at the, the, um, the cycles. But note for just a minute, it says, chapter 6, verse 1, that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. It tells us why they're difficulties. So, therefore, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for these seven years. Now, if you'll just stop for a second and think. Seven years. Where were you seven years ago? That's a long time. Now, in my life, it does seem to be going faster. I'll say that, right? And as we get older, those years just start flying, right? But seven years. You know, if I'm suffering for seven weeks, I'd say that's a long time. Seven months. Just ask your kids how long that school year seems, right? Ten months. And, oh, right? Seven years. They were enduring this oppression from the hand of Midian. So what were they doing that time, during that time? Well, we're going to get to that in a second. But the reasons for their difficulties, I want to note this. It says that the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But notice this. It also tells us in verse 6, it says, so Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. The reasons for the difficulties, you could say, on the one hand, was because of the Midianites. They were the ones coming in. And the focus of the Israelites wasn't on their disobedience to God, it was on the Midianites. They're the ones coming in here. They're the ones causing all these problems. And you know, brothers and sisters, it'd be very easy for us as we look at the trials in our life to blame the Midianites of our own day, right? 
this sickness, this economy, the job that I have, the, 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 um, the circumstances in my family. You know, it wasn't my fault that I was born into the family that I was, the city that I was. And we can find all kinds of things to blame other people on. I, used to, I remember when I was teaching high school, there were several young men who would come visit me at different times because of the woes of their family life. But I could clearly see, listen, it's always your parents' fault. It's always your boss's fault. It's always the teacher's fault. But the problem here is that you are not obeying the Word of God. And so, of course, that's not going well with you. But all they could see was what everyone else was doing. For seven years, the Israelites were blaming the Midianites for their difficulties. And so, God would not come to rescue them. I remember my first job after college, and uh, it had such promise when I began. I was making more money per hour than I'd ever made. And the door had just kind of opened before me through a friend who knew of an opportunity. And there I was, but as no sooner had I got in the door when a new boss was put in place and the whole flavor of my job scene changed overnight. For whatever reason, he didn't like the work that I did. I could never do enough. And so even when I found a little bit of success, he would find fault and give me more and do this. And I, I just hated to get up out of, out of bed every day. And I moaned and complained and, and I was frustrated and... and, and and in the midst of all my complaining, I remember one time God said, so if I leave you there for two years, you're just going to sit and pout the whole time? This is your job. I gave it to you. And James 1, 2 said uh, uh, that we were to... Uh, uh, oh, why can't I quote it? I had it before. <clears throat> um, rejoice in our trials, right? James 1, 2. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God said, you've got the wrong attitude. You need to have an attitude adjustment. And he says to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And I thought, oh my goodness, Lord, I need help. <laughs> and so I called out to him for help. And you know, it took months. I had to make myself get out of bed every morning to go to work. And my boss didn't change. The workload didn't change. The demands didn't get any less. But I remember there was a time where the Lord was helping me throughout the day to take uh, just a few little breaks and, and re remind myself to call out to Him and say, Lord, thank You for this job. Thank You for providing for me and help me. And as I would call out to him for that help, he would give me the grace. And I remember there was a point where I finally was no longer bitter and I was just trying to be better and, and, and to let him work in my life. And it wasn't until after all that bitterness was gone, after I had changed, he gave me a change in my job. And he what? Thankfully, I didn't wait the two years like he warned me, right? I was thankful for that. But you know, it's not easy. But if we're not careful, we will blame the Midianites. We'll blame something else that our eyes can see. But i got to say this. Not all of our suffering is because of sin. We can look at the life of Joseph, who was faithful in the house of Potiphar. He was faithful in prison even when he was wrongly placed there. 
And time after time, life seemed to turn against him. It wasn't his fault. Daniel, he wasn't walking in the sin that the nation was, but he was captured with the rest of the nation and taken off to Babylon. And yet he was there in captivity. You know, they're really the best examples of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? They rejected him for no fault of his own. He was beaten, he was rejected, he was whipped. Everything that we did to him was not for anything that had to do with him. It was us. And then Job, right? It wasn't because Job was walking in sin. God allowed that. And we don't, we can't, Job didn't see behind the scenes like we get to read in chapters 1 and 2 of his book, right? God allows things to happen, not always because of sin, but you know, sometimes it is. Sometimes there's something God is trying to work in us. And he allows these difficulties to come. And we've got to just make sure that we're not blaming the Midianites. We're not looking in the wrong place like they were. And so for seven years, they, they refused to look in the right place. So the first application I'd like to remind us today is we consider how they were out there trying to do their thing. And here comes the Midianites. What about our difficulties? Are you going through difficulty today because there is some sort of sin in your life? There is some sort of area where you're not walking with God like you should? Because here's what God said, verse 10. I said to you, I'm the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's why it happened. They would not obey God's voice. So, if the difficulties in your life, maybe there's nothing there. If you've searched and God has not revealed it to you, maybe it's like Job or Daniel or Joseph or Jesus. But if it is, if somehow there's some area in your life, I've had to look at my life just this week, last night, this morning, saying, Lord, is there something in my heart that's not right? Am I holding a bitterness against someone? Am I looking with judgment on someone else? Am I doing something that's causing you to bring difficulty into my life? Are you withholding that blessing for some reason that's in me? If I could just add another challenge to this, and I realize we're not going to get close to the whole chapter, so I was wondering whether to finish the chapter this evening or do something else, but there's something the Lord showed me that I think is important in this regard. The reasons for their suffering. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord in chapter 1. Can I just... Highlight this. Over and over it says they serve these idols. But we were reading this last week or so in Second Kings. If you'll turn with me there just to look for a minute. Second Kings chapter 17. It's to the right a few books. And here's what we found, right? Um, <clears throat> my kids are studying Nahum for the Bible B competition coming up next month. And the book of Nahum deals with Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And so we were trying to learn what we could about the history of that time period, and, and it brought us back here to 2 Kings 17. This is when the nation of Assyria was ruling. Now, this is a long time after the days of Gideon. But here's, the, here's what, what happened, right? As the, the kingdom after David and Solomon split, there were two kingdoms, the north and south, and the northern kingdom never had a single good king. They set up those golden calves. They worshipped foreign idols all the days that their kingdom existed. The kingdom in the south had eight good kings and they went up and down just like we see in the book of, of Judges. But there came a point where God said enough and he allowed the nation of Assyria to come over and conquer 
the, the northern kingdom and take them off into captivity. And that's the time period right here that takes place in 2 Kings chapter 17. Now here's what's interesting about this time period. The, the, the strategy of the Assyrians was not only to take the people of Israel back to their land, but then they took some of their own people and put them into this conquered land to live amongst the people that they conquered. I don't know whether they figured they'd intermarry and become one new people and they wouldn't be as bound to rebel. Maybe it was partly to kind of look out for these, these people we've conquered to kind of keep them subservient. It doesn't explain their strategy necessarily to us, but it tells us this is what they did. Now notice, here's what's happening in chapter 17 of 2 Kings. It says, um, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala by Habor, it tells us where they put them. So Israel was, uh, Samaria is the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, and they took them back to Assyria. However, it says in verse 24, see, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So now we have the people of Israel and the people of Assyria living side by side. Now what happens when you take these people who are the people of God and the people of Assyria living together in the same land, right? Notice this. It says, verse 9, I'm going to go back a little bit to the the, the unfolding of how this happened. In verse 9, Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right, for they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city, and set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill under every green tree. They, while they were still there, under supposedly the rule of God, they were secretly setting up other altars and places of sacrifice for these other gods. So it wasn't that they completely outright turned away from God, but they, in addition, erected these other altars in secret. Then it says, uh, verse 13 tells us God sent prophets to try to command them and they wouldn't listen. But now I'm going to go to what, what happens when these new people come in amongst them. All right. This is chapter 17, verse 29. However, every nation continued to make gods of his own and put them in the shrines and the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. So these people didn't fear God. They had their own gods, and so they built their own idols in Israel after they got there. However, it says that God sent lions amongst them and began to attack the people, so they started wondering, what's going on? Obviously, we don't know something about the God of this land. What do we need to know? And so they went and consulted with the Israelites on the God of Israel and how they're supposed to worship him. And so, uh, verse 32 tells us that they feared the Lord. And from every class, they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. And they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from where they'd been carried away. So, they began to mix the worship of the Lord with these other things. Now, this really hit me. You know, we often say they they left the Lord, they started to worship idols, but we don't really get the picture. They're hypocritically still trying to worship the true God while they're tolerating and setting up in secret these idols. That hits closer to home for me. I haven't left the church. I haven't forsaken the Lord and denied Him and gone off into some life of outright 
gross sin that everyone can see. But I have to ask myself, are there things in my life that I've secretly erected where something is competing with my loyalty to the Lord? That's what the Israelites did. And the Lord said it was evil in His sight and He sent the Midianites. We as individuals, we as families, we as a local church, we got to beware of these things. Here we're talking about all the seats we have in the back. I wanted to see the Lord add to our number. We go out to the beach as we plan to do next week and we do evangelism there. We go door to door. We're, we're trying to set up home Bible studies where people that we know we can try to bring into our homes and, and try to witness for the Lord, but the Lord won't bless if we've got secret altars. Something else is taking the Lord's place in our lives. It's evil before Him. And the Midianites are going to steal it all away. It says they tried. They, they, they farmed the land. Right Back in, in chapter 6 of Judges it says they tried to sow. They tried to, to thresh their wheat and, and along they would come again. The reasons, yeah, not just the Midianites, but it was their own sin that had caused it to happen. Now what was their response? Their response was very interesting also. It says, verse 2, they made for themselves dens and caves and strongholds. They began to retreat from the enemy. The enemy was gaining a, a stronger hold on their life and rather than engaging it, rather than fighting against them, calling out to God, they made for themselves places of supposed safety. Did it help? No. They were in retreat. Bury their head in the sand. Maybe they'll go away. For seven years they didn't go away. At our Bible study in the home just the other week, Mike was making mention of this passage and said, notice that caves and dens are often places of darkness. We're trying to work for ourselves. And the Lord says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build. And if we're not walking in the light, we're walking in the darkness. And so, we must beware. Right? They were, their response to all this was to retreat, was to try to handle it themselves. And the farther they ran away from the enemy, trying to deny it or avoid it, it didn't go away. They just ended up going further into darkness. But finally, finally, verse 6 comes and says, So the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Finally, they called out to the Lord. And how often do we continue to run rather than to stop and come back to the Lord? From the very beginning, Adam, he's hiding in the trees instead of coming to the Lord. The Lord's got to call out to him. And the Lord's calling us, come back. Call out to me. I've got the help that you need for the Midianites. But the Midianites is not the real problem. It's our relationship with the Lord we need to be most concerned about. And he'll take care of those difficulties as we come to him. So that's our practical application here. What has our response been to those difficulties? And if we're still relying on our own help for relief, give it up. God's the only one who's going to make the difference. So, God had a response. When they finally turned to him, verses 8 through 10 tells us the Lord sent a prophet. Okay? So, he sent someone to speak to them, and he had not just the messenger, but there was a message. And his message was twofold. There was a reminder and a reprimand. He said, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who destroyed those enemies. I drove them out before you, and I planted you in this land. 
Remember what I have done for you. Not what you have done for me. Not how you've rescued yourself by your 12 steps, whatever. I did it for you. I saved you. I put you into this land of inheritance. However, his reprimand, verse 10, says, I am Jehovah, the Lord your God. Don't fear those other gods. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now this strikes me. The Bible says, if we will ask God for wisdom, He gives to all men generously and without reproach. How many times I'm in a difficulty, even because of my own doing, and I call out to God and He helps. You know, here was the, the, the disciples of Jesus and they were in the boat and here was the storm raging and they had just come from this incredible experience where he fed 5,000 people and, and he's showing them, I can provide and take care of you. He said, we're going to the other side of the lake and they, here they say, Lord, we're going to die. Don't you care that we're perishing? You know, he rebuked them after it was all done and said, where's your faith, right? But he stepped in and he helped them. How many times the Lord steps in and helps, but sometimes when we really ought to know better, when, we, when, we've, when we've continued down the same path and we've refused, and here's what it says in, in, in Judges, is it says, no matter how many times the Judges came, they did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And when we refuse to turn and, and, and stop that stubborn way, He has to continue to rebuke us. We're not really where we need to be. But thankfully, He at least sends the help. And said, do we remember what God has done for us? If you're in the midst of that struggling, listen, God would say to you, remember what I've done. Stop fixing your eyes like Peter, sinking in the water because his eyes were on the waves. Look at the Lord. Remember what he's done for you. Remember how he reached out and grabbed your hand and pulled you up out of the sinking waves of your own sin and difficulties. And, uh, and let's, let's recommit ourselves. Are we obeying the voice of the Lord? Because if we're not, listen, we're not ready to go on to that deliverance. He's still working on us. And I know it's not easy, but He's there and He promises His help. And that's what Gideon is and his people are in the midst of this. And they, and they finally, after seven years, come to this place. And so God is now stepping out. He sends this prophet first, but then He acts. He sends, actually, this new judge, which is going to be Gideon. We pick that up in verse 11. Now, the question that I find so interesting in this is um, the difference between what God sees in Gideon and what Gideon sees in himself. We have a question of identity in two cases here, right? First of all is, who is this one that God's calling? The angel of the Lord comes and sits under this terebinth tree and Gideon is out of fear, hiding in the wine press. Now, when you, get, when you thresh wheat, you normally do it on the top of a hill where the wind can blow because they would get a big bowl and they would throw the wheat up in the air. And when those wheat berries would come down in the bowl, it would crack them off the head. And when they threw it up the next time, when all the wheat berries were gone, the wind would blow away that chaff. And then the wheat would fall in the bowl. And when it's all wheat, they'd set it aside, put more in there. And, they'd, and they, they used the wind to their advantage. Well, you know, they're scared of the Midianites. So here he is in the valley where they built their, their millstones for, for the wine press, and he's threshing his wheat down in the wine press. Just a picture of what we saw earlier, this fear of the enemy. And the angel of the Lord comes up to him and says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. What? Who are you talking to? <laughs> mighty man of valor, I'm here hiding in, in, in the wine press, threshing wheat, and you're talking, mighty man of valor. And the Lord tells him, oh, the Lord is with you. Now, he says, sir, 
the lowercase l in Lord in verse 13, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, that's typically used of a person, a human, right? So he says, listen, sir, if the Lord is really with us, then why has all this happened to us? All these miracles our fathers told us about, our Lord bringing us out of Egypt, where is he? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. But the Lord turns to him and just says, now listen, you go in this might of yours and you will deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now somehow in the midst of this, he suspects it's not just a person, but but the Lord, because it says in verse 15, so he says to him, oh my Lord, notice capital L, different word, Adonai, which is one of the names for God in the Bible, right? He says, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in my whole tribe of Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. How am I going to be able to save my people? I'm a nobody. God says, you're a mighty man of valor. And he says, I'm a nobody. Now, we've all heard this before. Moses is arguing with God. Jeremiah, who am I? I'm just a youth. But God says to him, I will be with you. There's a crisis of identity. And brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you put your faith and trust in Him. The Bible says, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have made new. God has made us a new creation in Christ. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And God sees something new in us. And yet there's something interesting that the Bible talks about in the New Testament, where in that same chapter... Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, you know, beforehand, we used to know each other according to the flesh, right? He says, now we know each other like thus no longer. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. It's unfortunate that the labels we wear are so external. Even our names. We give names because we like the sound of them. Sometimes it's because we like the meaning. We tried to go with more meaning when we named our kids. But you know, in these days, they would change their name if, 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 if it was more fitting for you. Right? In, in, in Judges itself, Gideon's father gives him a new name. Rather than being Gideon, which means one who cuts down, he calls him Jerubel. Um, let Baal plead, right? He, he challenged Baal. And if, if there's anything to Baal, let him plead for himself. Here's the man who took on the, the, the foreign gods that, that, that is part of the reason for our terror. And, and, and he was able to stand up and confront him. Now, where is this God? Got a new name. The Bible talks about the Lord giving us a name when we get to heaven. And, and the Lord knows what it is and no one else does. And, and, and someday we'll find out what it is. But, but for now, what are the names the Lord has given us? Whoever receives, as many as receive him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul writes his epistles and says to Rome, to all who have faith in Christ, called as saints, holy ones. Now we know that we still stumble and walk in sinfulness in this life, but God no longer identifies us with a label called sinner. He labels us as a saint. 
But when I look at my life, I don't always see that. Gideon didn't see what God see, what God saw in him. And so he was, he was not fully ready to fulfill what God was trying to raise him up for. That's why I called this message the, the, the transformation of Gideon. He had to learn some things about himself, the one God was calling, but now also about the God who was calling him. Was it really the God of Israel, the true God? And he would discover it is. It is. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us as his workmanship to be his ambassadors in our day. But if we're running from the Midianites, if we're walking in sin, if we don't even understand what God sees in us, we're not going to be able to do it. Tonight what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at where God takes him. How does he reveal himself to him? How does he give confirmation? Gideon lacked confidence in the person of God, in the word of God, but God wasn't angry with him as he sought for that confirmation. And he'll be commissioned and he'll receive orders and he'll walk in obedience, but he'll need confirmation. And we talk about that fleece a lot. Hopefully we can talk more about it this evening. What do we do with that in today's day and age? But first, let us wrestle with the lessons that God started with Gideon. First of all, we have difficulties. What's our response? Are we trying to handle them all ourselves? Or are we calling out to the Lord? Are we really leaning upon Him? Or trying to do it all ourselves and just retreating and getting beat further and further back? Let's turn to Him today. Father, sometimes I... I know that as I read passages of Scripture that are familiar, it's hard for me to stop and really meditate on the nuances of what you're saying in and around the main thought. And Lord, this is a common story. Gideon and his 300 men. The way they lapped at the water, the way he put out the fleece, and they can sometimes become the focus of the story. But Lord, your focus was on, on yourself. And what you see in a man or a woman versus what we see. What you can do to address the needs of our day versus what we can try to do if we do it in our own strength. Lord, today I just want to ask that you would give us hearts that are inclined towards obedience. That whatever you say to us, you'd give us a readiness to respond. And whatever little altars we've erected that have been in hiding in our lives... Lord, would you help us to tear them down? Would you help us to eliminate them? To make no provision for the flesh. But to restore in the center stage, the preeminent place in our life, the Lord Jesus Christ. For He truly is worthy. He gave His life to save us. That was part of your message to the Israelites. Remember what I've done for you. And Lord, we've remembered this morning that Jesus took on a body and spilled His blood to purchase our salvation, our redemption. But Lord, help us not to forget that. Lead us back to Calvary again and again so we can see our own sinfulness and we can see the full extent to the love that You've demonstrated for us in sending Him to die to take away that sin so that You can give us a new identity. A saint. A priest. 
one who will reign with Christ. Someday, we believe in the near future. But Lord, we need, we need your help for today. So we look to you. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know what we're talking about, they don't know that their sin is forgiven, they don't know for sure that they're a child of God and, and a saint, Lord, we ask that you would draw them to yourself and that they would see the work you've already accomplished for them and help them to experience that new identity even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.